Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, I'm thrilled to be joined on The Profile today by Tom Wright. Tom Wright, of course, is well known to many as a leading British Bible scholar. He's a former Anglican bishop as well, and uh, he's got all kinds of books to his name, both his, if you like, academic work as N.T. Wright and his popular level books uh, as Tom Wright. Uh, Tom, welcome along to The Profile. Good to be with you. It's great to have you on the show today. Um, we like to talk about all aspects of someone's life. We We've got little time though so it, so we'll, we'll we'll have a condensed version of your story you grew up in a christian family is that correct yes a, a church-going family a very ordinary middle anglican type um church on sundays um hymns around the piano saying prayers at bedtime and i was encouraged to read my bible from quite an early age and uh once having started, I have never seen any reason to stop. <laughs> and you've gone on to read it in the original <laughs> Greek of course, yes, uh, yes, yes. as well. Um, I'm always amazed when you do a show with me here at Premier Christian Radio. You, you sort of can recall things to mind, but you can equally just trans- translate on the hoof from your Greek. Well, the, the Greek New Testament is quite a small book. I mean, it's not as though it's the entire corpus of classical Greek. One can know this little book quite well. Yes, absolutely. Um, what persuaded you that you wanted to go in the direction of academia? Did did uh, you know? Did, did you ever kind of consider any other kind of vocation in oh, your yes. life? Oh um, yes, I knew from an early age I wanted to be ordained. My grandfather, my mother's father, was a parish priest who was an archdeacon, and he was a super chap. And I remember as a small boy just liking him enormously and and thinking, wow, that's what I'd like to do, to be up there on a Sunday and (laughs) preaching and leading services. And and he was a great singer as well, and I've always enjoyed singing. Music's been very important. Church music has been very important. But it was then only in my late teens when I um, scraped into Oxford by the skin of my teeth and then started studying philosophy that I started to realize this huge world of ideas out there and and grappling with marvelous great things Mm. and great writers and then started to think wow I wonder if maybe somehow I could be part of all that and how does that fit with being a priest with being ordained with preaching sermons then the more I was studying theology the more I thought this is what I want to do. I'll spend, spend my life studying the Bible and teaching people about it. And of mm. course, um, clergy ought to be doing yes. that. So in a sense, I've been riding those yes. two horses, and the academic and the pastoral. I've tried to keep them in balance, though it's not always been yeah. easy. Who would you say were your, your great influences growing up and through those student years? Well, through my teens, there was a man who sadly has just died this last week, a man called Richard Gorry, who you won't have heard of. Uh, he was English but worked all his life in Scotland, and he ran the Scottish Scripture Union camps, and I used to go to those as often as I could in school holidays and then was a helper on them when I was at student age myself. And Richard was a wonderful, patient, loving, prayerful Bible teacher, a very wise man, a very godly man, the sort of man that you really wanted to be with as much as you could, but when you were with him, it was kind of special. It was a bit like being with Jesus, I mean, mm. quite seriously. And he was a huge influence on me. Um, there were teachers through my undergraduate years. Keith Weston, who was um, rector of St. Ed's Church in Oxford, was a great preacher and teacher, a lovely friend and, and support. My own um, graduate teacher was George Caird, a great scholar and a great influence on me. And then Charlie Mole in Cambridge, I got to know latterly after he'd retired, another great New Testament scholar. And these were wonderful people who held Christian ministry and preaching and a prayerful life with biblical scholarship and just fused the two together. Mm. And, you know, if I could be a little bit like that, that'd be great. When did you get ordained? Was it in the... I was ordained in the mid-70s when I slightly delayed because I was doing my doctorate, um, but I was ordained deacon in 75, priest in 76, so I'm coming up to my 40th anniversary. There you go. So 40 years later, I mean, did you have any idea what the church or part of the Anglican church would look like today, what the particular no. issues no. particularly... Nobody saw coming what we have had over the last generation or two, although when you understand where we are now, you can see the roots of it going sure. a long way back. I didn't know very much at that stage about the worldwide church, although when I was quite young, I was asked to go as a as a young delegate to the World Council of Churches in Nairobi in 1975, which was fascinating. That was an eye-opener, <laughs> um, because the World Council had everything from um, extreme far 
left people to yes. Greek Orthodox yeah, and yeah. everything. So to, to discover that one was part of a much mm. larger family, it was a wonderful experience, but also quite scary. Yes. And I think I've gone on being amazed <laughs> and awed and also a little bit anxious about the worldwide church and where it's all going. Do you think that if you were able to sort of make a an informed choice today, let's say, that wasn't influenced by the circumstances you grew up in, would you be an Anglican, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Um, this is not, I mean, it, it's it's very odd. It's like, could you have had different parents? Exactly, almost, yes. Because, of course, I grew up in mm. it. There have been moments when I've thought, do I really belong here? Should <laughs> I be somewhere else? And, of course, there are many people who yeah. grew up in one denomination and have moved elsewhere. Um, I happen not to have done. And one of the reasons for that is partly a love of the, the classic liturgy and its music. Mm. And it's a great tradition to be musically prayerful or prayerfully musical in. Um, but also because the Anglican tradition... Uh, in, at its best, showcases scripture itself in a way that few others do. Mm. Morning and evening prayer and the Eucharist, if done properly, you get an awful lot of Bible flowing through your system, mm. not just as information, but as prayer, as worship. And that, to me, is, is, has always been yes. very central and important. I read an interesting article recently which said as much as it appreciated the love of the Bible that evangelicals have, they often aren't that good necessarily in their informal worship styles of actually presenting the Bible. Absolutely. And I was discussing this with some folk just the other day because actually what good liturgy does, if you have an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, these are not to inform you. We, we used to call them the lessons, the first lesson, second lesson, which was misleading. That's actually a bad translation of lectio, which means reading. Because what you're doing with the little bit of the Old Testament you read is you're pushing your nose up against the window and seeing the whole sweep of everything from Genesis to Malachi. Ditto, this little bit of the New Testament, you have in your mind the whole sweep of mm. the New Testament. And the reason you're reading them is to celebrate the mighty acts of God. And you happen to be privileged to be witnessing this and just holding them gratefully mm. before God, rather than saying, this is the bit I need to learn today. Of course, there will be bits you need to learn and preach yeah. on. But I would love to see us recapture that. And also to discover the people in our congregations who know how to read well in public. It isn't just blah, 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 blah. It ought to, and, and nor is it a matter of a sort of a highfalutin West End actor going over the top, mm. but a matter of, of wise, powerful, clear interesting reading preferably with new translations yeah, being yeah. used to bring out more of the flavor when you read the bible do you tend to read it as an academic as a historian approaching a historical text or do you regard it as a an, a life breathed uh, divinely inspired word that will have be more than any other text you might read on that day. It'll, it'll do more for you than the Times will. The, the only answer to all of that is yes, all of the above. <laughs> I've, I was, somebody suggested to me when I was a student that I should have two Bibles, one for academic study and one for personal study. And I knew as soon as that was said that that was entirely wrong. Right. Just as we discover who God is by looking at who Jesus was and is, and we know who Jesus was and is because he actually lived and died and rose again in first century Palestine. And you, if you try and bypass the history, mm. you will get God and Jesus wrong. Right. In the same way, if you imagine that this living, wonderful word isn't firmly rooted in the cultures in which it was born and written, then you will, again, misinterpret it. So that when I'm reading, I mean, I read large chunks of the Bible morning by morning, mm. um, and I don't sort of take off one bit of the brain and put on another. Mm -hmm. I am engaging with this text at every level. And some emphases will be slightly different, and some will make me pause and pray, yeah. and others will make me think oh my goodness, and scribble something down for use later on when I'm writing a lecture or whatever. But <laughs> the whole thing flows together for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. What, what would you say is the biggest change of mind you've had when it comes to your understanding of Scripture? Mm, interesting. Uh, in all the time you've been doing. I know lots of people whose yeah, minds yeah, have yeah, been yeah, changed yeah, yeah. by you and the <laughs> way you've why, yeah, presented yeah. Scripture in a fresh yeah, way yeah. to them. But, but what was that moment yes, for you? Um, it's interesting. I suppose it was a change from... An early, I'll use the shorthand first and then I'll explain it, an early dualism to a realization of what it meant that God is the creator and the recreator. And I can track this because I was asked to write a little commentary on Colossians many years ago. And in the middle of Colossians 1, there's this wonderful passage about 
that, that Jesus is the image of God through whom and for whom and by whom all things were created and all things in heaven and earth. And when I was doing the first draft of that commentary, I really couldn't get my head around the involvement of Jesus in creation and in recreation, why God wants to recreate the world. Because I'd grown up more or less thinking that the purpose was this world is not my home, I'm mm. just passing through. Yes. So any idea of recreation was kind of odd. And so I put that away for a couple of years. And when I came back to it and started again, I was a little worried, what am I going to do with that difficult passage? I got to it mm. and I couldn't see where the difficulty was. And mm. I realized that during that period of two years, something quite deep inside me had changed and I had been transformed myself so that now this bit of scripture was meaning what I hope it ought to mean. And so that then has played out slowly in the rest of my life. And perhaps the biggest thing there would be that instead of talking about going to heaven when we die, which we all talked about mm. growing up, mm. I realized the New Testament isn't about that at all. The kingdom of heaven is not Jesus saying, here's a kingdom called heaven and here's how to get there. The kingdom of heaven means the sovereign rule of the God of heaven on earth as in heaven. And studying Jesus, as I've tried to do intensively, historically as well as theologically, and studying the rest of the New Testament, that has been absolutely transformative. And it goes on transforming everything else. It isn't just that our vision of the future is now different. It's our vision of everything else, of who we are, is different as a result. And, and if I could encapsulate a theme that runs through so many of your books this this would be it mm -hmm. and certainly it's there in your latest book mm -hmm. the day the revolution began reconsidering the meaning of jesus's crucifixion and, and to some extent i think what you're going against is is the rather i guess formulaic sort of uh, idea of there being a kind of a, a mathematical sum that god does and we just need to mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. sort of make sure that we're on board with that right. And and then we get to heaven and, you know, and we're just and waiting right, out our time yes, yes. and that somehow this this equation happens at the cross. Yes, yes, so, OK, yes. if that's if that's not the right way to be thinking right, about the right. cross, give us your picture of, of the right way. Right. I think I want to start at the end and say God's design is, as Ephesians one says, to join all things in heaven and on earth together in the Messiah. Now. In the Messiah, that is in Jesus, heaven and earth come together. He is the heaven and earth person. And what he does in his life, in his inauguration of the kingdom, in his death and resurrection and ascension, is to make that now a cosmic reality. And the New Testament comes back again and again and says that something happened when Jesus died as a result of which the world is a different place. Nobody realized until Easter Day, and it took him a while to realize even then, but that something happened. And this is very difficult for us to talk about because it's to do with there being dark forces in the world which we humans give power to by worshiping them, whether we call them gods or whether we just think of them as money and sex and power or whatever it is. And then they have power over us. We worship them, which is idolatrous, our humanness fractures, which is sin, etc. How are we rescued from that? And here's the problem that we in the West have tended to see the whole thing in terms of have I behaved myself sufficiently or not? Right. Here is a moral standard. God wants me to obey it. Oh dear, I haven't. Then God's going to punish me. Oh, fortunately, somebody gets in the way and takes the rap on my behalf. And I want to say that's a very low grade, almost pagan view of how a god might behave and it's we get there because we have moralized our view of humanity morals matter enormously but humans are more than moral keeping machines humans are meant to be reflecting god's love into the world and reflecting the praises of creation back to the creator and it's very interesting that in the book of revelation it says that the the, the blood of the lamb is shed in the new passover so that we might be the royal priesthood the kingdom and priests not so that we can heave a sigh of relief and go to heaven. In other words, it isn't about moralizing our vision of humans. It's about a vocation. And Jesus rescues us from all the things that get in the way of our being the genuine human beings we are supposed to be and can start to be now to practice ahead of the final new creation. So it's a little more complicated than sure. you normally think. I, I, I mean, much richer, I think. But at a basic level, you know, if, if you ask the average Christian, what does it mean? to you that Jesus died on the cross. They said, well, he, he died for my sins. Mm -hmm. he, he died so that I could be forgiven. Yes. Now they may have then, if you ask them the further question, well, how did that work then? Yeah. They might say, well, 
well, it's it's something along the lines of you know he took the yes, punishment yes. that I was owed, yes, or yes. Uh, or maybe they'll do it in the in the way you yes, talk about yes. this idea of there was a moral bar and yeah, 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 only yeah. Christ could jump over it and so on. Okay, now are you saying that's wrong? Are you saying I, that's that's not the right I'm way to think about it? There are lots of half truths out there, mm. and as somebody said to me years ago, I forget who it was. If you take a half-truth and make it into the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. Okay. And that's a very serious thing because then the vision of God that people have is distorted and so many people are actually put off the gospel, some of them having tried to believe it for many Mm. years, and then finally they just say, no, that sounds like a bullying God. If there is a God, he can't really be like that. And sadly, there are many churches in which this vision of an angry God who's going to get you, who demands mm. blood, and da 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 Unfortunately, somebody steps in the way, and he happened to be innocent, and he happened to be his own son. And people, So I often said, to hear some people talk about the gospel, you'd think that John 3.16 would have said, God so hated the world that he mm. killed his only mm. son. It doesn't. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, and it's... And you, it's all very well. Sometimes people say, well, all that picture is important, wrath and sin and hell and all the rest of it, and it's because God loves us. But simply adding the word love onto the end of that story mm. can be actually right. even worse. It, it is like what abusers do when they say, I, I love you so much, you know, and that's hideous. Sure. So that people have seen that in our generation and have reacted against it. But I, I really do want to say, I didn't write this book because of those abuses. I wrote it because out of my own living with Scripture Mm. for many years, I've just seen what I think is a bigger picture where it all fits together so that the punishment for our sins matters as well. God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. That's that's important. I mean, what what to you then is happening when someone becomes a Christian, they they trust in Jesus? Do they have to have sort of understood or at any level kind of um, believed in a particular type of exchange of, of sin and innocence and righteousness and so on at the cross? Or, or is it simply as simple as trusting in Jesus in, in some way? The more one knows as a pastor and as a church historian about how people have come to faith, the more you realise that God moves in many mysterious ways. And I think for many people, it isn't at all about an intellectual thing. And this may be a partly a personality mm. thing. Some people are just gifted by God with the, I've got to think this all through yeah. bit. But if they're wise, they should know that there are other people for whom that may come a little bit later. Mm. And they are drawn by some kind of irresistible love which they see in Jesus, maybe a painting or something uh, something they've read about Jesus or the story of the prodigal son. There is no atonement theory in the story of the prodigal son, but this idea of a father reaching out his arms and running down the road to welcome this wretched young lad. Mm. You know, how can you not be moved by that and just say, ah, thank you, this is for me. And I want to say, yeah, At that very moment, God says, yes, this is for you and you're welcome. And now, in the fullness of time, maybe tomorrow or next week or next year, there's some stuff it would be wise for you to get your head around. I've often thought that, in a sense, at the the cross itself, there is that moment with Jesus and the thief. And Mm -hmm, the the thief, um, presumably not having any idea of what's going on here it says remember me but when says remember me when you yeah, come into yeah, your kingdom yeah. and jesus says today you'll today, be with yeah, me yeah. in paradise and there's so there's a sense that I've, yeah. I've always felt as well in a way it's not dependent on us having a kind of right theology no, exactly, that, that, that exactly. we get sort of exactly saved and, by. but i mean i believe in theology i believe in learning to think mm. christianly it's one of the great themes of most of my work <laughs> is that one of the reasons the new testament is written is to teach these early christians to think christianly because they're going to need to learn how to think to navigate all the problems that they're faced with. And the cross will be at the middle of that. But that task of learning to think Christianly is something that comes to different people at different levels at different stages. And I believe that little children can have faith. I believe Mm. that when uh, a parent gazes at a child or a grandchild, I did this morning with my four-month-old grandson, we just had a good bit of eye contact and smiling Mm. at each other. There's a wonderful sense of love which passes between, which is pre-articulate. And I really think if God is the great God we know him to be, 
God has the same ability yeah. to communicate with and, people. And I, I think of that as well, I suppose, in terms of our, perhaps there are people who have limited intellectual abilities. Course, and you, you told a story, I wonder if you'd retell it, of, oh, yeah, yeah. of visiting a community which yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. where a lot of uh, people with Down syndrome yes. were present and, and went to take communion. And, yes. and they may not have a f- you know, full yeah, and complete yeah, understanding yeah. of the... Of yes, I mean, it's that. a wonderful, wonderful church I remember in, in Houghtonless Spring, actually, in County Durham, where uh, the first time I, I went there, I was astonished, take, uh, celebrating the Eucharist and looking down, and the front few rows being full of these people, I think, teens and twenties uh, with Down syndrome, and they were just thrilled to be there and part of the community, and the community was obviously thrilled to have them there. Mm. They weren't separate, they were there, and when they came up to the communion rail, the look of utter delight reaching out their hands. Mm. And I want to say, Jesus said, unless you be converted and become like little children, I think he'd have said, or like this lot. Yes. And, and there is a simplicity and a total acceptance mm. of the love of God. And I think God has a very special care for those. And that is really beautiful. So that then, of course, we are all given different gifts. And when you look at the stories of the early church, there are great theologians and people with the most amazing brains, Irenaeus, Augustine, people like that. But the reason Christianity spread was because of ordinary Christians on the street looking after their neighbours, helping them when there were medical emergencies, teaching them because medicine and education were not free, and it was just for the elite. And these Christians were doing it for everybody. Um, There was a sense of caring for the poor and so on. And people said, this is a different way to be human. What's going on? And ultimately, yes, it's because something happened on the cross as a result of which the powers that had held the pagan world in a dark captivity were defeated. And the proof of that is that then the gospel can go out and people's lives can be transformed. Is this, to some extent, what people have termed the Christus Victor model of the atonement? Yes, it is. But but the problem with that is that in the, um, I forget what it was, 50s and 60s, there was a famous book on Christus Victor, which played it off against the other theories. Mm. And it was that book by a a Swedish bishop called Gustav Aulain was obviously reacting against low-grade presentations of an angry, wrathful God and substitution. And so said, no, 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 forget all that. It's about God winning the victory in Christ over the powers. So it became an either-or. So many people have thought, because we believe in penal substitution, we mustn't believe in Mm. Christus Victor. That's completely wrong. And the Gospels are the place... Now, here's an odd thing. (laughs) I've read a lot about the the meaning of the cross in the last few years as I've been working towards Mm. this book. Most of the books I've read about the cross hardly touch on the Gospels. One or two texts here Mm, and there. mm. The Gospels are all about the kingdom of God being established on earth as in heaven. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the primary thing that's about is the messianic victory. He has king of the Jews above his head. And it is couched in terms of a victory over the powers, over Herod and Pilate who have put him there. Actually, he's winning the victory. And everything else that flows out from that, representative substitution example, etc., is within that context. In, in what sense, though, it, it sounds amazing, but, but in what sense did a man dying in a, on a cross in the era of the Romans mm-hmm. when thousands, tens of thousands of people would have suffered similar deaths, mm-hmm. in what way did that usher in a revolution? In what way did that defeat the powers of yeah. darkness? The, the short answer is you have to read the book because that's <laughs> precisely the question which the book is trying to address. Yeah. And part of our problem is that we in the modern Western church and world are so far out from thinking the way that first century Christians thought that things they could take for granted in a slogan, we have to reconstruct with mm. difficulty like people learning a new language. But but actually, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are such amazing texts. And again, so many Christians belittle the Gospels by just reading 10 or a dozen verses at a time and getting a little lesson out of it as though this is a sort of Christian version of Aesop's fables. You know? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> the Gospels are telling the story of how Israel came to its appointed vocational role in the person of Jesus, the story of how the creator God came to do the thing which he had always promised to do in the person of Jesus. And the Gospels are telling these stories so that this comes together. But then there's the dark strand which starts right at the beginning in Matthew when you get old Herod the Great uh, killing all the babies and plotting to kill Jesus as well, which is a bit like Pharaoh killing all the babies in Egypt and so on. But there's a sense right from then that evil 
is clustering around Jesus and gathering like a huge great storm cloud until in Luke's telling of the arrest in the garden, Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And we see what's happening, that the evil of all the world is somehow being lured onto this one place. Mm. That's the story the Gospels are telling. Mm. And it's a very odd picture for us. But the point is that on the cross, that is dealt with. Paul says God condemned sin in the flesh of the Messiah. And the proof of that is that Jesus rises again. Right. And that can only happen if evil and death Mm. have been dealt with. And then the proof is that by God's spirit, new things happen in the world. The kingdom of God goes out and changes lives and communities Mm. Mm. in a way which was unthinkable before. So you, you sort of see the cross as this sort of point in history where where from that point god is able to move in radically new ways absolutely absolutely and it's very odd to say god is because if god is god then yes but but the answer is yes and of course it's all about the sort of god god is that people often say why doesn't god do something and people want god to send in the tanks and just (laughs) blip out but no because of who god is as we see actually throughout scripture He is the God who wants to work as the God of love. And ultimately, he gives his own self in the person of his son so that the wickedness and evil, the mega evil, the sin with a capital S, if you like, is more than just the accumulation of all the bad things you and I have done. It's a darker force to which we have given our power. Mm. That is finally defeated. And see... It's very interesting in Paul's theology, when he talks about the Gentile mission going out into the non-Jewish world, Paul links that directly to the fact that the principalities and powers, as he calls them, have been overthrown. That's why he can go and say in the marketplace, you're welcome too. And you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You're welcome as you are because all the barriers are down because of what Jesus did on the cross. Tom Wright, thank you very much for joining me on thank the profile you. today. My pleasure. And if you want to find uh, more interesting interviews with people from all walks of life <laughs> and their Christian story, do read Premier Christianity magazine. And the profile is brought to you in association with that title. Uh, again, thank you, Tom, for thank being you. with me. And uh, do come again for the second part of the profile in just a moment's time. The profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome to the second part of today's profile with me, Justin Briley, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. And if you'd like to read more features and interviews with people from all kinds of walks of life telling you about their Christian story, then do go to our website, premierchristianity.com. And if you'd like a free sample copy of the latest magazine, simply add slash free sample. So the full website address, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. It's great to be joined now by Pete Gregg, who is, of course, from the 24-7 Prayer Movement, author of books like Red Moon Rising and uh, God on Mute. And the latest book from his hand is Dirty Glory. Go where your best prayers take you. Pete, welcome along. Nice to be with you again. It's lovely to have you back in studio. Um, You are one of the most kind of interesting people I know because you, you have a bunch of interesting stories interesting experiences um but in in some ways you're also very normal uh which is cool because it makes me feel like actually we could all be do the things you do and see the things you see uh because god kind of does use normal ordinary people in many ways doesn't he yeah i think so i think that's the whole the whole message of the bible don't you think it's funny how jesus recruited sort of such ordinary people and peter tried to te- talk about of getting crucified <laughs> yeah, and, yeah you know i love how honest the bible is and it drives me bonkers the way some leaders some christian leaders pretend there's something different or other or special when people put you on a pedestal it's a very very lonely yeah. and dangerous place to be I'm seeing something like, I don't know, a bit of a movement in the last few years. And and you're seeing it with other people doing things like Mike Pilavachi's got this new book out, Naturally Supernatural, and and that kind of thing, where they're trying to say, let's take that stuff from off the stage and just put it out in the everyday. 
and, and see what happens. Yeah, it's weird how weird we get about God, isn't it? When you think that he, by definition, created everything we consider natural and normal, and then we think that we should banish him to just supernatural, mystical, strange experiences. If God made everything, then by definition, most of the times he speaks, it will be through normal people in normal ways. Most of what he does will be provide for us in sensible, logical ways. Mm. And then, of course, there is the supernatural realm, those things we can't understand that are beyond that. C.S. Lewis wrote about this a lot and that makes sense to me when my wife got very very sick I really didn't care whether she was healed supernaturally or by a doctor I just mm, wanted her mm, healed yeah. why do we have to box God yeah yeah this, this book um, is just packed with interesting stories it's in many ways it's the sequel to Red Moon Rising which told the story of the how 24-7 prayer came about um, and yeah. the boiler room movements the the way it started to spread around the world yeah um, I mean we're what 17 years in now to, yeah we've been praying the, non-stop <laughs> for 17 years can you believe it It, it's crazy um but what i mean what are you seeing today that you perhaps could never have anticipated when you when you first came almost everything we have been in a state of almost constant amazement for Mm. 17 years and uh this is a genuine movement yeah i i really didn't start it i don't like being called the founder that's why if if people insist (laughs) on i say the bewildered founder because (laughs) the thing's an accident yeah we started one prayer room God came, as he promised he would, and then he sneezed, and a virus started spreading, and um, now we're in over half the nations of of, uh, Earth. We're working with every denomination of the Salvation Army through to the Catholic Church. We've seen a family of new ministries, justice uh, initiatives, um, prayer spaces in schools, extraordinary things right now in cathedrals uh, around Europe. And, uh, you know, Rolling Stone magazine and Channel 4 television Mm. getting interest Mm. in what we're doing. We never went after this. I never even thought it was a good idea, but God's done it. We've been surfing the wave 17 years. It's much better fun than trying to make waves. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about some of the stories in in this new book because... uh, Dirty glory. It does. It does summarise it really well because so often the stuff that happens isn't neat. It's not prepackaged for a, a nice before and after sermon story. A lot of this stuff that you talk about is kind of kind of ongoing as well. I mean, as you mentioned, your wife uh, is has a condition which hasn't been at this point miraculously healed and taken away, but is being managed. But that's. But that's all part of life when you're kind of in this ministry where where you see amazing stuff happen and other stuff that you wish would happen doesn't happen. Uh, and, and, it, and sometimes it's hard to put that together, isn't it? Yeah, we live in the, 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 the now and the not yet. We've all experienced the blessing of God, but we all live with longing and unanswered prayer. And ultimately, until Jesus returns, there will be pain in our world and we are part of that not Mm. just as christians but as 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 humans so a dirty glory is the story of how from beginning to end god's story is about glory getting dirty and then the dirt getting blessed Mm. so if you think about it right at the start uh god breathes into a fistful of dust that's the beginning of genesis then you get god appearing as an inarticulate incontinent baby lying in a dirty manger in a dark stable that's the beginning of the new testament then he goes and recruits like fishermen and 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 zealots and and crooked accountants uh, to, to to be his followers so there's hope for us all yeah and then he says to those messed up people go out and take my glory and fill the earth with it so glory it's it's a story, I think, of the paradox of grace, how God takes messed up people like you and me and uses us in ways that leave us shaking our heads in amazement. What what it was fun to read is that you, you sort of had uh, an early version of, of 24-7 prayer. When you were a teenager, you got a few friends together and said, why don't we just try and see God together in a shed and see what happens? And yeah. you, you probably did lots of heretical things looking back, but um, <laughs> somehow... God still turned up um, in, yeah. in a strange way. Um, it was amusing to read that you um, 
obviously uh, <laughs> early on in your theological uh, upbringing heard a sermon on, on why the gift of tongues had passed away and was not for today yes. which you started telling all your friends about yes well I'd never even thought about the gift of tongues I grew up in a church that taught the bible well but didn't really know anything about what the holy spirit does today and so I never thought about it. And I'd only ever heard one talk on the gift of tongues. And it just happened to be, you know, you flip a coin, it happened to be <laughs> against. So that was then my official position. I told absolutely everyone I knew, because I wanted to impress them, why the gift of tongues didn't exist today. It was only about 30 people, but, you know. <laughs> and they and none of them had an opinion either. So they all said, well, that's fine. That's now our opinion. And then God gave me the gift of tongues um, as a joke one day. I, I'm pretty sure I was out walking my dog and annoyingly found myself speaking in tongues. And I uh, was in denial for about three months because it didn't fit with the only talk that I'd ever heard on the subject. I think, don't you think God's got a bit of a sense yeah, of humour? Well, he has when you read some of these stories. I, um, I mean, but going back to this shed that you that that kind of you were just sort of seeing what 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 might happen. You just want to say, well, if there is a God and if it's true, then we. we we should expect to see something happen if we if we get you know all gather around and yeah my my fast. problem is i've never been very good at christianity right and so i tried to give up and then i made the depressing discovery i was even worse at atheism it's really <laughs> i'm i'm stuffed what do i do so um so i resigned myself for a while to sort of beige agnosticism mm. and then i figured look if there is a god then it's got to be like the New Testament. It's mm. got to be riots mm. and revival and mm. getting stuck in prison and miracles and all that. And we just, we didn't know what to do, but we just thought, if it could be like that, we're in. Mm. If not, we're going to go and drink woodpecker mm. cider and, and, and exchange saliva <laughs> with girls and go to a lot of <laughs> wild parties. And so, we, yeah, we gathered in this shed in my mum's back garden to try and make God turn up. It was cringingly appalling. <laughs> Out of tune guitars, reading Michel Coist's Christian poetry whilst gazing each other in the eyes, having communion. I, mean, I don't even know if we were allowed to, but, no, you know. And, and the thing is, God, God turned up and miracles mm. started happening. And I remember my friend Mark who was a local carpet fitter, he came uh, to, to the meetings because there was a very pretty girl called, called, called <laughs> Becky who was coming. And all good Christian youth ministries have blended <laughs> the Holy Spirit with hormones. And uh, he pegged out of the room one day, and I followed him and sat down and said, what's going on? He said, God's in your mum's shed. So I said, oh, yeah, where two or three are gathered. He, and Mark almost hit me. He said, don't quote any stupid Bible. The creator of the universe in your shed. This has got implications. And if I go back in there, I'm going to have to get some things right in my life. I don't want to get right. He's never been back in the shed to this day. So we began to discover that truly to be caught up in the purpose of God is exciting yeah. and even better than woodpecker cider. I mean, a, a story that really struck me was um, that, this very dramatic story you had of um, your son, Hudson, and um, you were at a kind of big meeting, uh, a kind of conference. Uh, you were speaking there alongside um, Floyd McClung, who's uh, someone I know who's been quite influential in, in his ministry as well for you. Um, you you were due to go out one evening um the the, the your son was uh, apparently in sleep asleep but something didn't strike your wife sammy as right so tell us this story because it's it's well it's, it, it was one of the great miracles there are a lot of miracle stories actually in mm. in, in, in the book uh, so we'll, we'll we'll do a plot spoiler on this one <laughs> but there are plenty of others um yeah we 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 um we can't explain why, my, but my wife, who has to take a lot of anti-convulsant medication, um, felt the need to count her drugs one night, all of her pills, and she takes hundreds. Mm. Um, and our son, we were away at this conference, uh, and our son was asleep in our bed, and we were due to be going out. We had a babysitter. Mm. So she starts counting the pills. I thought... I mean, I suppose I'm a typical husband. I do get a little bit frustrated with how long <laughs> Sammy can take to go out in, in the evening. It's like she enters a, a, a time warp. It's sort of proof that Einstein's theory of the relativity of time is, is, is real. So, And on this occasion, she starts counting her pills, and I think this is crazy. And basically there were, I think it was 18 uh, missing. Um, and um, we we suddenly had the same thought we flung back the bed covers and our son Hudson had 
uh, had eaten because they were brightly coloured. Yeah. They looked like sweets. Looked like sweets. A yeah. Whole bunch. He was unconscious. Um, we eventually got him to the hospital, but the National Poisons Clinic had said it's by the time he gets to the hospital, it'll be too late to pump his, his his stomach. The thought that the drugs that were saving Sammy could actually cause major organ failure in my own small child was more terrible than I can mm. imagine. In those situations, you pray. You, it's not it's not about being a Christian. It's about being human and fragile and, and frightened. These are prayers of fear, panic. Yeah. Um, you, you describe them as blasphemous prayers. Yeah, I, I often pray like a man falling down yeah, the stairs. Yeah. You know, it's it's not theological, <laughs> it's scared, it's yeah. help. And all I know, and I do know this, is that by the time we got to the hospital half an hour later, um, the he had come round from being unconscious and there was no trace of the drugs in his system and we searched every place they could possibly be and we know mm. that he ingested them mm. and so he was healed and extraordinarily that same night my friend Floyd, Floyd who was staying next door to us his his daughter fell into a coma giving birth in Washington State we mobilised prayer and she and the grandchild were miraculously uh, healed mm. so on the same night Floyd and I both nearly lost our firstborn children and both experienced miracles. It, I mean, it's always difficult, though, isn't it? I mean, that is, it's, it's an extraordinary story. Um, and yet, at the same time, as we've said, there are other people who, who pray frantically when something awful is happening and they don't see um, that kind of a turnaround. And, and what do you do with that? Because sometimes I've heard it, it said, unanswered prayer is an issue but also it's it's made worse when you see someone else's prayer that appears to have been answered in a miraculous yeah. way because then it's like well that makes mine feel even harder to yeah. take i mean ha- where do you go with that well the first thing is god's not a coke machine you don't mm. you know put in a prayer and get a miracle this is far more complex than that the mm. second thing is we've got to have the integrity and the humility to acknowledge two things the first is that not all our prayers work mm. the second is that some of our prayers do work mm. and some of my friends in the more sort of you know hipster emergent side of christianity love sort of talking about the mystery and the mm. paradox of unanswered mm. prayer and they're terrified of miracles so yeah. you know and some of my pentecostal friends are terrified about being honest about the fact yeah. that it doesn't work as a formula yeah I've tried to be honest. My last book was about unanswered yeah, prayer. Yeah. And uh, I had a vicar's wife take me aside before that was published and say, you can't release this. You're Pete Gregg. You're the guy who tells us <laughs> that prayer works. Please don't write a book about right. the fact it doesn't. I just said, I've got to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. actually what's encouraged me with God on mute is that I've lost count of the number of people who said I've come back to faith through this book. Um, you know, I didn't lose my faith because mm, of this book. Mm, it helped me mm, find faith. Mm, mm. This book, Dirty Glory, is I th- I hope also very honest, but it also is full of miracles because yeah. I feel like I've done due diligence on <laughs> yeah, yeah. on unanswered prayer, and yeah. I want to tell people none of us are in this thing because yeah. prayer doesn't work. Right. We're in this thing because it does. Yeah. Your yeah. biggest intellectual problem mm. is not the fact that sometimes your prayers don't work. There are lots of atheists around who will mm. say, "Well, of course mm. they don't work." Mm. There isn't a God. Our biggest intellectual problem is how often our prayers are answered, how much mm. we are blessed, how mm. God does mm. hear us when we cry out to Him. There's another interesting story um, where you, you're, again, uh, I think, speaking uh, at a conference and uh, you're you're with uh, a friend and um, you get woken up in the night um, by, and you, you say this doesn't happen often, um, but that almost audibly you heard some words about um, get Campus America praying. Yeah. Um, Campus America being the sort of the student sort of, of the students of America essentially Christians um, and uh, tell us what happened in, in that particular instance we were in um, Redding California I'd been speaking at Bill Johnson's uh, church there and at one of the early Jesus culture conferences too uh, I was uh, sharing a, a, a twin room with my friend Dave um, we had a you know wonderful night we'd actually prayed for quite a lot of students went to sleep and then the small hours of the morning, I was woken by what I think might have been the audible voice of God. Mm. But um, there's no way of knowing. All I know is I was suddenly awake, my heart pounding, adrenaline pumping through my system. And I could hear sort of the echo of the words, which was Campus America, call Campus America to pray. 
I, I, I mean, I normally take half an hour to even have my first coffee in the morning. <laughs> this is not the way I normally wake up. Dave was fast asleep, so I um, stumbled out of the room and, and went down to the hotel lobby and journaled a whole bunch of things. My mind was whirring, and I couldn't understand why, why is God asking us to get American students to, mm, to, to, mm. to pray? There's lots of big... Uh, seasoned, well-funded, you know, student ministries, yeah, yeah. and we're 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 like you know hamsters running <laughs> around in the background of their great sort of wildlife park. Um, but anyway, this has happened, and I came back to the room. Dave was still asleep. Went into the shower. As I was in the shower, God spoke to me a second time, and and he just said to me this. It was a bit less dramatic. He said, "Dave's had a dream," but it was like clear as anything. So I came out, wrapped a towel around me. Dave was awake. And I mm. said to him. Uh, Dave, um, tell me about your dream last night. Like, really cocky. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And he, his jaw hit the floor. He said, how do you know I had a dream? And I said, oh, you know, God told me. Like, it happens all the time. He had had this dream about um, calling the campuses to pray. So, um, and i tell you tell you a yeah. bit more about it in, in Dirty Glory. So it was the beginning of one of the major new developments for us mm. of working on campuses in America. Mm. That's what it's been like for 17 years. Yeah, yeah. Every time we start to sort of get our pipe and slippers out and think that'll do, God jumps in, hijacks the aeroplane, and we're <laughs> off on a new adventure. <laughs> I mean, you talk about in the book that, that often it's about choosing to say yes to the Holy Spirit rather than no. The, the idea that you could have, I don't know, one reaction to that could have been i i'm i'm i've just you know had too much cheese or i've i've you know so but but you're willing to see god actually in every moment and kind of go out sort of step out a bit in faith and and put some some weight on that and say let's see if this is actually god speaking to me i mean not all of the things that people experience are necessarily going to be as dramatic uh, as that so so how do we kind of i don't know encourage ourselves to have that kind of faith and trust and say yeah I'm I think God might be telling me to tell that person that I think that he's told me something most of us though would think no I'll just look so stupid if I do that or something like that I mean how do we get over that kind of fear barrier well there's two parts to your question first thing I'd say is the most dangerous thing you can ever do is say no to the God who's only got the best for you um, we tend to think that the risky people are the ones who sort of, you know, abandon all and, you know, mm. go off and do wild and crazy things for God. The safest place you can be is in the sweet spot of God's plan for your life. And so, um, you, you know, it's terrifying to find yourself saying no to God. It is exhilarating, fulfilling to say yes to him. He says, I- I've come to bring you life to the full. So that, that's that's the first thing. Step off the cliff a bit, and mm. you find you can fly. The second thing is um, your question then touches on, you know, say speaking up to a yeah. friend. You say, yeah. I think that first of all, we've got to use common sense. So, for example, say you, you know you meet someone, you th- they're, they're unwell, and you should you mm. think should I offer to pray? Look, don't go in and say. God's going to heal you, you know, kneel down now outside, you know, W.H. Smith's. What you might want to do is just be a little more sort of nuanced and yeah. say, look, maybe I'm crazy. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I actually believe in God. I don't know if you do. Mm. And this is going to sound weird to you, but I, I, I believe sometimes God answers prayer. And I just sensed I should offer to pray for you, but it's completely up to you. Yeah. Sometimes when I offer to pray, people have got healed, but not all the time. Yeah. Do you know what I find is that doesn't rock the, the, the non-Christian sort of worldview. They actually think, oh, this is someone vaguely normal, but they're a Christian. And then if it only takes one miracle. Mm. It only takes one breakthrough. And if it doesn't happen, people still appreciate you've treated them with respect, you've not been rude or arrogant, mm. and that you clearly really believe what you believe. Mm. And so God can even work through the times that it doesn't work as well as the times it does. What we've found over 17 years of 24-7 prayer is that people who don't want to be preached at still want to be prayed for, Yeah, almost without exception. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm aware that at the moment... Um, uh, someone I know and I think my, you know as well Nabil Qureshi who's got the most extraordinary story of coming to faith from Islam to Christianity um, part of that was through dreams a lot of it was through um, an intellectual journey as well um, he's seeing massive 
sort of a huge influence through his story and his witness and then over the summer he's diagnosed with fourth stage stomach cancer he's he i know he is encouraging people to pray for him he's praying lots of people being mobilized to pray he's also of course going ahead with the medical treatment and and so on and and saying god could heal me like that like that but if he doesn't i'm kind of I know I'm safe in God's hands. I mean, with with a story like that, it almost seems like you wonder why why Nabil he's just about to start. You know, he's just at the cusp of this amazing ministry, and suddenly it looks like everything's hanging in the balance. And and that's a story where we we don't know what the end is going to yeah. be. Well, that's the first thing is he may be healed. Yeah, and I do think that we should start with the most childish prayers always, which in that situation tends to be God heal him. Yeah. I love his attitude. It's the same as the attitude that Corrie ten Boom had when she was diagnosed with cancer, you know, the, the Dutch Holocaust survivor. And, and, and she said, God, I want whatever will bring you the most glory. If it will bring you more glory to heal me, heal me. But if it will bring you more glory in some way that I may not understand, to take me home, mm. take me home. And that's true faith. That's not trying to get God to say amen to our prayers, but saying I want my life to be an amen mm. to your prayer, your desire, your will. And that's clearly what he's showing. I think the other thing is that we must understand that we're dealing here not just with God's will, what does God want to happen, and not just with God's world, people get sick, Mm. but with God's war. We're dealing with a spiritual battle. We must have, as followers of Jesus, some kind of cosmology. And when Jesus cast demons out of people, he said, I saw Satan fall from, from heaven. Uh, when, 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 when Jesus wrestled with the, the devil for 40 mm. days in the wilderness, uh, we must understand there's a, there's kind a of battle. A, there's a, a kind of spiritual cosmic battle going on that we often don't see, but, yeah. but that's, that's real and so happening. Here's, here's, the really, uh, here's, here's God's kind of judo move, right? Mm. On one hand, Satan is trying to take him out. God does not put cancer in someone's body. God mm. God is not like that. If anyone mm. ever told you that, they don't know him. Mm-hmm. So this is not God's doing. Right. This is the enemy trying to take okay. Nabil out. But here's the deal. Romans 8.28 says, All things can work together for good if we will just love God. And so even if Satan wins this particular little mm. battle, we are going to win the war and mm. God will do a judo move. He'll yeah. flip Satan yeah. and somehow, even if he dies, it'll be used for God's greatest glory provided we just keep loving God. But isn't that cool? Isn't well, that reassuring? It's, it's kind of, in a sense, the very heart of, of Christianity is, is the, the greatest judo move at all, of all was, exactly. was Jesus dying. And I guess Satan thought he'd won at that point, and, uh, but it wasn't to be. It's been great having you on the program thank you very much for joining me to talk about dirty glory um available now uh, go where your best prayers take you um uh, it's chapter two in a way of the of the red moon <laughs> rising thing that, that you began with um i mean if someone picks this up um what are you hoping by the time they set it down by the end of the book i want i want them to be so inspired that they want to pray uh, I want them to cut out the middleman and just go to God and say I will do whatever you tell me I'll say a big fat yes to you with my life and uh, I want us to go on more adventures you know life is short mm. the world is in desperate need and we have the answer in Jesus let's live a little more dangerously let's have a more entrepreneurial spirituality let's be far more creative and imaginative mm. in the way we live and the way we communicate and then come and help us write the next chapter of this story this isn't my book this is a story about something God's done and we're all involved let's write the next bit together Pete thank you for being with me today no worries thanks for having me it's always fun don't forget you can listen back to the profile at our website premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile and it's also available now as a podcast check it out on iTunes and other podcast providers thanks again for being with me time to hand over now to Dave Rose he's up next bringing you some of the best bits from the past week here on Premier